Welcome, everybody, to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. Uh, my name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alex and Troy. And Chloe, a little bit. I didn't read the book. Can uh, I ask for a point of clarification? Sure. Are we calling you Troy consistently? Because where we left off post-episode last week during a was, cigarette break. I was break, still contemplating it. Okay. We'll see. We'll okay. See. Okay. Okay. I just uh, want to know. <laughs> To help our listeners along, uh, we've just read the first six chapters of uh, Flannery O'Connor's uh, The Violent Will Bear It Away. The Violent Bear It Away. The Violent Bear It Away. Um, and I guess to start things off, we just came back from watching a book talk uh, uh, from the author Gloria Norris, who wrote a book called Cuckoo Land, which is a memoir that takes place in the city that we live in, um, or live around, I should say, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, what did we all think of what we had just witnessed? Her life story sounds fascinating and, and, you know, filled with, with like the trauma of generational poverty. But uh, yeah, it sounds like that's the crux of the story is her being abused by her dad. So we haven't read the book, so I don't know if we should really discuss that. We, we can discuss the content of that talk, which was frankly was bizarre. Um, I mean, I found the most interesting parts were like right now in Manchester, the Greeks are kind of like the middle, upper middle class. They tend to own a lot of the small businesses around here, but her experience as a uh, the child of Greek immigrants was that they were the impoverished ones, and she actually lived in public housing in Manchester. And the idea of a Greek mafia is something that is very intriguing to me because I never think about the Greeks as a mafia. You have not driven by Sulio's Coffee House? I don't didn't know that was a mafia hangout. There's a lot of old dudes out there looking like they're doing deals. The coffee house has no windows. I think she was using That's the how you know the mafia reference as like a as a as a comparison to explain like the culture of silence where you don't go outside of the family to to get help. But it sounded like they did crimes together. That's how she described her father. That's at true. Least. Yeah, like gambling. Robbery. Yeah, I mean it doesn't have to be high level, you know, like quite like The Godfather, but it's still a family that does crime. They're in waste yeah. management. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but one of the things I did find very frustrating about the whole thing was it seems like we are not allowed to go anywhere where art is talked about, where somebody doesn't bring up the fact that we live in an exceptional time of lies and that love and unity are the only uh, the only solutions to this very troubling time we live in, uh, which is all based around like this... Uh, how should I say it? Like a, she's trying to point towards Donald Trump as this very, very special thing that it, bad that is happening, and like it's just so frustrating. Yeah, it makes me cringe every time I hear it. it. It was interesting too that he was referenced continually by like I think multiple of the speakers, but never by name. Like it's just kind of like this this shadow. He's Voldemort, the boogeyman. Yeah, but this was a room of like clearly like upper middle class white baby boomers in the most affluent state in the country, I think, or at least one of pretty close to it. Yeah. And one of the most affluent regions of that state. So to hear this talk about how like the, t the crisis in this country is at like a fever pitch, it 
seemed kind of absurd. Um, especially we were sitting in a really nice community college that was clearly recently renovated. Like, yeah, I the community there. college is nice. Is I've never been there dope. before. Yeah, and like part the of price her, is right too. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of her her story even was talking about the Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream speech and gag me and uh, her father. Yeah, I know. How right? many times is that going to be referenced? Like literally everywhere I go. So. Uh, yeah, so she brings up the idea, like Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech, and then um, her father's support for George Wallace uh, when he had the, you know, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever speech that um, her father liked so much. And the, like, how you can go from remembering that specific set of events to going through as, like, even if I'm being sympathetic towards her liberal point of view, going to through Reagan, through George W. Bush, and then then now Trump is like special, right? Like the whole executive power grab of the Bush administration is irrelevant, right? Like the toppling of uh, governments in Central America under Reagan doesn't matter. It, and she would clearly be aware of those events. She is part of that culture that would have those circling around. And why this is seems so psychologically harming to them that Donald Trump is president is just beyond me. Even as a liberal, I just don't get it. I think it's just because he's so base and like in your face, like he does not care. Whereas Reagan and the others, like they tried to put on a face about it. But Trump is just he's a reality TV star. Like he does not care. It gets likes, it gets views and it drives him crazy, which is also kind of the point why he does it. Which is the root of their problem is that it's an assault on propriety. It's an assault on this veneer of respectable politics. Of We have two sides and we argue them respectfully. It's an assault on that and it directly is attacking like this, like, you know, like the neoliberal consensus. Like it's attacking that, especially the post-Cold War, like complacency of American politics. Yeah, the assumed consensus is really annoying. I think it's even more fundamental than that. And I see this a lot with my family. So my parents and my grandparents are like super liberal. They're like super liberal. Um, and I think the issue, what makes Donald Trump so jarring to these types, especially those our parents' age, so boomers or boomers plus, whatever, is it's not that he is crass so much as he's not a politician. So George W. Bush was an idiot who made up words. Like, he didn't always speak very eloquently. The Daily Show made a, John Stewart made a career out of making fun of that. And we thought, oh, that's the that's our dumb president. But he was still a politician. He was a government man. So to have an outsider who is not a government man, it like takes the um, it takes the mask off of what power is. It's not like a respectability club. And sometimes you have a good one. Sometimes you have a bad one. But they're all kind of in the same realm. He doesn't have the aura of legitimacy. No. And what's striking is that it was not it was able to happen. And what's even more striking, even if they don't believe it is that nothing changes. So what is power? What is the president? Those are scary questions, and it makes people just freak the fuck out and say strange things. Because they just want to go back to ignoring every, like ignoring the rest of what's happening in politics so that they can you know, read the Washington Post once a week and see that, oh, okay, things are going okay-ish, I guess. You know, at least we have a, a responsible person at the head of this monstrosity, monstrosity of an empire. And it's how they can see things like what the Clinton administration's sanctions on Iraq did to the, the children of Iraq, the, right. the deaths of hundreds of thousands, they can see that as a consequence of just, oh, well, that's that's politics. What are we supposed to do? And they, they can kind of wash their hands with the responsibility of it, I think. But because there is a man in power who is so clearly not a politician 
and a buffoon. Yeah, an unqualified. Yeah, like those things are what is what is business as usual is seen as like a crime against humanity or something, which it which it, which it fundamentally is. You know what I mean? Like, and it has been, and it always has been. But what's disconnecting is my parents don't talk about the content. They talk about the they don't talk about um what is it? They don't talk about the content. They talk about the form, and yeah. that's frustrating. Because the content is lives and the form is tweets and they're more concerned with tweets. And that's what the content of, you know, MSNBC and stuff is. It's it's hysterics about the way that things are being handled. The hysterics about the way Trump talks about immigration. What he's doing is continuing Obama's immigration policy. But the way he talks about it is what they fundamentally have the problem with. And like the thing is, is I I get when people say like... uh, you generally have this point of view that Trump's unqualified and that you want to you want a more qualified person in office. And I understand that if you're taking a more cynical view of the world. Right. And you say we live in this world where uh, we have nation states and they need they need to have certain relations. And sometimes those will be violent. And there's always going to be a bigger, you know, badder nation state that can uh, you know dominate other ones. But when they go to, you know, all we just need to do is love each other. And I want to live in a utopic world where everything's good. How can you possibly buy into what the DNC is feeding you? Right. Like how how can you try to claim the moral high ground over these deplorable types that you hate so much when like the results of your actions never come to anything that even approaches moral and you actively avoid dealing with the death and destruction of what you support actively. I really don't know. It's probably one of the most supremely frustrating things about being alive and consuming media right now. God. It, 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 it drives me nuts. It, it makes me get a pit in my stomach when I listen to these people talk. Also to say that like love and unity is the solution to these like very complex problems of like, power and management of populations and these big questions not only is it stupid it cheapens love and unity because what the fuck are you talking about yeah and also what the fuck you mean love you look down on everybody liberals think they are so much smarter and treat others with such contempt you know they want to abolish like all kinds of things that allow people personal freedoms they think people are too stupid to own guns they think people are too stupid to have speech to buy cheap cigarettes. To buy cheap cigarettes. To buy a fucking scratch ticket, okay? And yet you want to talk about love? To dr- to drink big sodas as the second billionaire to enter the race as the Democratic <laughs> presidential Christ. nominee was famous for banning. I was uh, telling that I actually, um, one of the things the talk did bring out was... Troy. I, I, whatever. He'll beep it out. It's fine. <laughs> Is uh, that, like, the way uh, Gloria Norris was talking, it actually comes off as edible right like it comes off as if she wants to destroy her father and so like the politics that she's presenting is like her response to that and so she wants to she wants to get rid of the person in her life that represents these bad things and those are politically represented in trump or in the republican party i mean i think there is merit to this idea that trump does represent like the imposing patriarchal figure of like a like a and I think we can relate to this, guys, a buffoonish father yeah. who's overbearing, domineering, and demands respect that he does not deserve. I think that's something that's like a relatable thing, and I understand why Isn't people really balk at that. Isn't that just the office of the presidency, though? No, Isn't because every, that like, wasn't what Obama was represented in any way. No, he was, the, he was the cool dad you wanted to fuck. But just a general asshat. 
in the position. Like Obama was at least eloquent in his speech. That's what people like. Yeah, liked cool about dad, him. you want to fuck. Um, they new didn't thesis, care that he bombed Yemen, but he spoke well. New thesis the president is America's daddy, and sometimes you do not like your dad. Sometimes your dad's a piece of shit, and other times he's hot. But what, I, what I'm saying is that he kind of represents that that image of of of, page, of a patriarchal he's, figure. He, he's like a Homer Simpson type, you know, like idiot Like Archie father. Bunker. Yeah. He's also the definition of privilege. Like, the silver spoon is so fucking far He's our first mouth. Jewish president. Real estate magnate from New York with an immigrant wife. Next question. Hypochondriac. I thought that when she was talking about her father, and her father was saying that, like, the world is an evil place, dog-eat-dog, that tigers and Bambi shouldn't be in the same room, which I thought was a weird comparison of tiger and Bambi. But I was like, you know, her dad's kind of right. <laughs> like, I'm a realist. Like, that's the way it is. I think he, her her dad is completely right. That is the history of, of human existence is, yeah. is struggle and conflict. And the point of a political project is to acknowledge that and say, can we transcend this? Can we improve human existence? Can we? I don't know. Amen. I mean, yeah, that's, that would be the point. That is the question. That's what, that's what makes us human versus just a fucking orangutan. But I mean, also to minimize the violence, sure. Like, that's a noble aim for a republic. But to just imagine it doesn't exist, that's stupid. No, of course. We need to say this does exist. This is our history. Right. I mean, you know, and that we don't have to go down this rabbit hole too far. But well, like, let's do it. That's the point of departure, right, for Marxism. Its whole premise is saying, like, we... Engels talks about how the socialism will be the the very first year of human civilization away from animal animality of humans uh, because we will overcome these these socially created conflicts and I you know I mean to be honest in my realist mind I am more conservative in that sense where I actually am not sure that it's possible to transcend the trap that we're in currently as a species but uh i don't think we have much to lose in the sense of trying right uh i'm not i'm not it's the world isn't good enough right for me to be like okay we did it you know like we did enough uh at least that's how i feel and i'm not yeah i agree and i'm not satisfied with the idea that my life will be war war against others for survival you know i don't mean in terms of like pitched battle but like i don't want to view my life as a constant fight against everybody else to get ahead. But that's kind of, we're exiting that now, perhaps. Well, I feel like there's just a maxim that exists, whether you don't have to like go around warring for it, but it's not even about the violence. It's just about if you have the power, you're going to take what you want. So like from the Melian Dialogue, which was a thing from the Peloponnesian War, uh, Athens sacked this little town. They're like, wait, we didn't do anything. And then the... Athenian general said, well, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. And it's like, that's just true. Like, that is just yeah, a fact of life. It's not even about the violence. It's just, I have the power, so I'm going to take what I want. And that, But that's not exclusive to humans. That's, that's organisms, you know, acting with scarce resources. That's universal. But to bring it back to the Democrats, they should... No, but I mean, I mean this. Like, with their foreign policy and their immigration, like their immigration policies that are negatively impact killing people globally in order to continue to maintain our economic dominance like they should they should own it this idea that they're doing this that they, this is their their policy but they pretend that it is not and they pretend that they are not doing this so they can continue to maintain our economic dominance is is gross 
I would prefer them to be forthright about it. And I think that's why sometimes Republicans can be more palatable because they will say, no, fuck you. I want to nuke Iran. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, I, oh, like, okay, right? Like, it's grotesque. I don't want that to happen. But, you know, thank you for being honest. <laughs> it's the double speak thing. It makes, it makes it impossible to have a conversation with someone when they are just parroting back, like, the optics of equality or like freedom and shit like that but what they are talking about is absolute you know depravity and violence and then but it's couched in this language of you know marginalized peoples and reclaiming and you know renaming holidays as if like that was the problem (laughs) yeah the fact that liberals don't want to call it columbus day because columbus was like chopped off hands but they like want to just like take a dump on yemen for perpetuity and give all give all yeah. of her money to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's insane. my tax dollars, and that's what makes it so frustrating oh is the double speak of it all. Yeah, and that's why the Democrats are a far more dishonest party than the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party is dishonest in other ways, especially the way they explain their tax policy to their voters. Yeah. But I would rather be lied to about tax policy than my tax dollars going to murder children in their homes personally yeah i mean uh, the republicans still want to murder children they're just a little bit more uh a little they just call it war they, yeah they, right. exactly. they use yeah. the words that describe those things this is conflict for resources and economic do- and dominance not even economic right. geopolitical dominance over the world and maybe that's the cost that we need to accept to maintain our our quality of life until there's an alternative maybe that is i don't really I don't think so i, I mean, don't know but perhaps it is and that is their argument i can under i can hear it and i can yeah. disagree with it Right. I mean, in terms of realism as well, the idea of, oh, we're spreading democracy, we're going to nation build. I feel like the left and the right does that when, like, Bush didn't go into Iraq to, like, just kill people and bomb people and take oil. It was like, oh, we're going to save the nation, we're going to build democracy. But, like, the idea of Libya, I think, is the clearest example of it being a terrible idea. It's, oh, my God, this dictator is about to kill some of his people. What should we do? I, as a realist, say, let it happen. It is not in our interest. We should not do it. Because what happened? Oh, we toppled the dictator. Now there's active slave markets in Libya. And there's a civil war that has killed way more people than Gaddafi ever would have. Do you think we should have gone after Saddam Hussein? No. What? That dude was gross. He was horrible. He should absolutely have been murdered. I don't think that invading Iraq really was the best way to accomplish that. I don't think though. you need a full-scale army. I think a CIA job could have done You should kill people like Saddam Hussein. Well, a CIA no, no, job no, no, got no. him in. You that know? Well, fucked. you can do a take backsies. No, I, th- I think, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think like a bath party power vacuum would have not been such a hot scene. Well, so, I, th- and this is really the crux of the problem, and I'll bring it to the Kurd situation in particular because I know it's, uh, at least for me, it's like an emotional touching point because I, I, you know, root for the Kurds to... To, to win i want them Same. to succeed but so we're a pro curd podcast yeah anti weinstein uh, pro curd exactly oh, yes. go on sam um and also the kurds were betrayed under george hw bush when um he pushed saddam out of kuwait and the the uh the shiites and the kurds rose up and then we just abandoned them so you know, I have very little patience for people who criticize, you know, groups like the Kurds for allying themselves with America as if they had a, a choice. Like, th- their lives were on the line, their families' lives were on the line, and they would take guns from anybody to allow them to defend themselves. And, like, I understand if you depart, right, from the idea that society can be transformed, then I understand the realist position of saying, like, yes, you know, 
how else are you going to stop the Rwandan genocide except for going in as like an international force Mm -hmm. um, and stopping it that way? I mean, they did, the UN did go in um, into uh, the Balkans, right, in the 90s, and that was definitely going to be a genocide. uh, And there was some marginal success with that. So, I mean, do we just accept the fact that genocides are going to happen all the time and be an isolationist or only use soft power, right? When these things are happening Um, or like what, where does the, the remembering of genocides actually bring people to action? And obviously the U S military is not a great choice of force, but I mean, it's, it's like, it feels like the leftists want to have it both ways, right? So if the U S doesn't go in, then it's, it's, you know, I don't know, it's shown its imperialist colors by not doing that and this genocide happening. And if it does go in, right, then it's committing war crimes. As if two groups of Africans butchering each other somehow are fault one way or another. Right. Well, I guess it's not even fault. It's do you want all those people to die or not? If you're in the camp that does not, do you send in the U.S. military to deal with it? You can't, and yet you must. Well, That's good what intentions, it is. but you send them in, how do you get them out? You don't. We stay there forever. So I'm just saying, do we accept that we're going to live in a world of genocides for forever? Right? Or do we, ex- or we, do we do accept that we have a perpetual war against all evil people and send our military right. all over the place and just do wars all the fucking time over all everywhere? It's mostly robots anyways. I would prefer not to be the world's policeman. Not full isolationist, but... I have no idea what the solution to that is. It's an extremely complex question. And the answer isn't fucking love. It really is. The answer is not fucking love. And guess what? That is not the takeaway from the American Civil Rights Movement. That is no. literally not the fucking takeaway from the successes of the American Civil Rights These Movement. These goddamn hippies, they ruin everything. The black militancy that we saw in the 1960s combined with a massive social... To, to, to boil that down to just, well, we overcame it through love thy neighbor is despicable honestly yeah i mean it turns it into some sort of child's fable it's not which is what they like these are the same people who read ya i bet i mean that's why there's a new movie about the civil rights movement every year it's just like it is a fable now it's just a mythology they're not even real people and it also transforms the failure of our like contemporaries to do big social change it makes the failure a personal moral one. You just don't love enough. You just don't care enough. When in fact, it's much more complicated than that. We live in a world where people are more um, isolated from one another than ever. We communicate mostly digitally. There's all of these new factors, good and bad, judgment maids and judgments not, that make it so that it's not about whether or not you have enough love in your fucking heart to get the job done. It's just a preposterous premise all around. And like a, oh, and probably like a, my, my final point in this is another thing that she pointed to about what can be accomplished when people band together. She pointed to the women's march, which I thought which was which did what I thought that was like telling. I think yeah. that's probably one of the more telling things she said because did it stop rape? I don't think that was the. I don't what about all those sweet sweet pussy hat sales though. They were cute hats. Everyone got so mad about it, but they were cute. Yeah. So, but it accomplished literally nothing. You know the other thing that she mentioned? She mentioned uh. What I didn't... Greta Thunberg. Well, yes, but uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan... Stronger, stronger Together. together. Yeah, I don't think... I thought it was, I, I'm with her. That's what I thought it was. was she, had multi- she had multiple. Yeah. She, I don't know that which was one came first. Horrible, horrible brand design. Oh, yeah. Like, masterclass in what the fuck not to do. I mean, it just assumed... I mean, as typical liberal, it assumed the consensus of, oh, I'm with her, 
that if you're not with her, oh, you're against her, so you're sexist, right? And Clinton has said she lost the election because of sexism. Oh, Among God. other things, rolls. Bernie, Russia, the Green Party. I mean, the things that caused her to lose are just, whew. But I just thought it was interesting that uh, I don't remember anybody making fun of Stronger Together as a slogan. I was, I'm was i with her was the one everybody was tearing on. Yeah, I, I had never heard anyone mock that either. So for the listener, she said that people mocked Hillary's slogan, Stronger Together, for being hokey. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I wasn't familiar with that, but um, maybe I mean, maybe that's true. I don't know. Nothing's easier to knock down than a straw man, so... <laughs> And the fact that she's, you know, not even can't even rise to the level of like a, you know, a Bernie supporter, and she's just like, you know, how could, you know, Hillary Clinton? What was so wrong with her? Like, come on. I'm gonna be honest. If you're a Democrat and you don't support Bernie Sanders, you can suck my dick. No, you can just register as a uh, Republican. Yes, please. I mean, it's it's honestly mind-boggling. Though I I think probably we can point some blame on the fake news. Yeah. And just like fake news, we have some, no, it's not just like the opposite of fake news. We have some real ass news with- There it is. uh, (laughs) With Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bear It Away. So let's do the book now, boys. This pod has the smoothest transitions. Ta-ta for now, fellas. (laughs) Sam Johnson, transition master. Oh, Sam, you're transitioning. Yeah, finally. I'm transitioning from boy to man. <laughs> yeah, look at those traps. Mm. Listeners, you can't see, but my my shoulder game is uh, it's getting pretty good. Well, um, can't you like post a thumbnail for each episode on SoundCloud? It should just be a different picture of a different part. It of should Sam's be my body. progress pics as no, I get bigger. Li- no, yes. listeners, we are taking suggestions. We actually have a phone line now. My idea was that eventually we should make a calendar because yes, yeah, Sam's traps are ripped Hell his yeah. back looks good thanks but imagine if we had like um a full yearly calendar where we're like dressed up as firefighters and shit like what a great way to raise some funds for the pod <laughs> i love this <laughs> Who would so buy? much <laughs> chloe's Me. just gonna yeah just chloe's saying. just gonna buy her all stuff. you don't know no we i would got, demand a free one we got all right pay. so i've given a lot of love to our um non-north american listeners but we know there's canadians and americans out there listening so you guys can call in toll free although i don't remember what the actual phone number is i do not either also anyone can call in it's a web number right oh hell yeah, yeah. actually it's newbury it's a newburyport mass area code which i got a wicked big kick out of that's awesome so uh we set up a google uh phone number that people can call into and uh, we would like to hear your comments, suggestions, uh, tirades, insults, and what have you. So, uh, uh, Troy, take it away. All right. So the number that you can reach us at is 978-255-3404. It's going to be in the episode description, too. Yeah. So hit us up. Please. Can you text that number, too? No. Do I not text no us. no idea. I do not think you can text it. Maybe you can. Try send it. me an email try transcription. Us. Try to text us. The first, I, I did a test one while I was taking a shit, and it was pretty funny. So, <laughs> that was good. It really didn't, I made a bunch of noises at the end, and it. I think it uh, It translated it as pepper, pepper, pepper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining wait, you on, pants wait. down on the toilet going, pepper, 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 pepper. <laughs> it's all that spice. Pepperoni. Uh, it was a hot shit. <laughs> Gross. All right. So let's actually talk about this fucking book because go. it's so goddamn good. Uh, thank you, Alex, for introducing us to uh, Miss O'Connor. For the listener, Flannery O'Connor is my favorite author. 
and I understand why. Um, but I guess the first thing I want to talk about is like the thing that I noticed most about uh, this novel is that it's almost like stream of consciousness writing. Like we are on the border of like a Joyce type writing, but just not quite there. And the way that I would like to describe it is it's like really, really narrow third person. So you're constantly flipping back between the present and the past. And she does it in a fluid way where it's, it goes along temporally, right? Like it's not like a flashback. It's the memories that are being experienced at that moment. And she's just so good at that. And I just, I wanted to kind of open up the room to discussing that style of writing. I thought it was interesting that there's no grammatical denotation of it either. So normally it'll be like in italics or there's quotes around it for either thoughts or um, some memories or they at least like do a paragraph break. So you know that something's different. There's no paragraph break. There's just nothing, but it just flows so well just because you are basically in the character's head, but you're not. I think that the narrow third person is a great way to describe it. Absolutely. And the, something that I, I've been thinking about, cause I'm also reading the sound and the fury right now. And like, I, you know, Faulkner kind of writes in a, you could call it a similar style, but when I, I, when I read him, and I haven't read Joyce, but I find it disorienting and slightly confusing, especially at the beginning of the book, but literally from the second page of this book, you, I, I, there's no confusion, you know exactly what's happening, even though she's jumping from perspective or from, from tense or whatever you call it. I had some light confusion just when it would have um, a pronoun and I didn't know what the antecedent was. Just because every well, a couple of the characters have the same last name and they go by the same last name. So when it said him, I didn't sometimes know if it was talking about the old uncle, the school teacher, like which one it was referring to, because it's all in the young boy's mind. Mm. Um, but I was also blown away that there's just no denotation for thoughts or speech either. She just writes it out, doesn't create a paragraph break or anything. Even when they're speaking, there's no quotations unless other people can hear it. I noticed if somebody's like mumbling under their breath, it's just another sentence, nothing. And I was like, that's such a weird thing. I've never seen that with any other author, but it just, for whatever reason, works for her. It's like, I can't even put my finger on why. It's just so smooth. Yeah, I think she just does a really good job of of walking through the logical progression of someone's thoughts, right? So you're not bopping around too much. There is a, a containing force, the fact that you are dealing with one person's perspective. Um, but I did find it confusing that the names of the characters are never used, right? So you get Francis in the very beginning. I don't even remember who the great uncle's name is. Uh, and then you get Raber, who is the the uncle. And everybody else, like especially the extended family as the whole family history is introduced, are only referred to as relations. And so like who's whose sister, right, is a I mean, they're all whores apparently from the great great uncle's point of view, but I don't it was very difficult for me to figure out, well, which one was Francis's mom and, you know, whose sister was that? Uh it obviously would be the great uncle's sister's uh um child yeah daughter i think some of the ambiguity is meant to be there though just because it's like southern bumpkins like she's not crude about it but there's just like a general confusion about the family because they're backwoods people and i got lost when it was going through like i understood what was happening 
but I had the same feeling. I was like, wait, whose sister is this again? But it would also be confusion because he's 14 and he the all right. he knows of his family is what his uncle told him, who was a mentally ill man. Nah, he was pretty regular. Yeah, just a normal dude. But so like that's all he knows. He's just heard the lore from him over the years about all these relations. So like that's all he'd know. And then if you think about it, when you think of your relations, you think of them as, you know, oh, like that's my uncle. You don't really necessarily think, oh, that's Timothy. Right. That's a good point. And um, one other thing I wanted to note is how she uses metaphors and similes. I I don't know. I just had an epiphany while I was reading this is that, well, I first had, I guess it's a two piece. One was a couple months ago when I was reading politics in the English language and in that, it says your metaphors really shouldn't be cliche because if you say, oh, I have an axe to grind, what does that mean? Does that actually conjure up an image in your mind? Probably not, just because it's used so often. You know what it means, but it doesn't create a mental picture. Um, so Orwell then said, basically, just create something unique. Create your own. And I still remember it. His was, otherwise, it's like too many tea leaves clogging a drain. So as long as you're original, it sticks with you. But she takes it to another level where her metaphors are only things that the characters themselves would think. Whereas, so it's all Southern, it's all religious based. And then the one that I remember from this is actually from another short story, just because my book was a compendium of all her works. And so a son is like sitting on a bus in this. And it said, he who sat saturated in depression as if in the midst of his martyrdom, he lost the faith. And it's like that fits for the character because it's religious. He feels depressed. He feels like he's losing something. So the metaphor works on multiple levels because it conjures an image. It's a unique one. It's not cliche. And then also it's something that the character himself would think. And it's just like, damn, that is good writing. And it's really good for not taking you out of the book. Mm. So like I there are all kinds of analogies that, or metaphors you could use in that situation to describe, to bring an image to your mind. Uh, but I think that, and, you know, something like, for instance, like Tale of Two Cities, you know, with Dickens, he's, the, you're never that close to the character. You're stuck in an objective third-person point of view. So he can use different kinds of analogies that fit in a sense, right, and do bring conjure an image, but it's sort of part of a broader god i guess that is the narrator whereas here if there was an analogy about like i don't know uh they're in alabama so if there were like a sea analogy it would throw me off right it would take me out of the the closeness to the characters which i thought was just like you said troy so so good yeah i like that she the narrator is well it's a narrow narrator or narrow third person but also the narrator kind of tells you what their thoughts are instead of directly getting into their head. So it's like kind of omniscient third person, but it's such a narrow third person like you described that it feels like you're just with the character, not being told by the narrator. And I think in the first chapter, like her use of the stranger, it it does a, it goes a long way in terms of immediately fleshing out our, our main character. Because it kind of reveals like his his inner conflicts, his motivations, kind of, and so it it's a way of really kind of kind of naturally drawing that out while also se- obviously setting the stage for the novel to come. It's creative. I like it. Yeah, it was really good. You get the psychosis of the character, which is uh, like automatically makes it interesting, and it was. Uh, 
a cute way of adding dialogue, right, to a yeah. scene where he's just by himself with a corpse, right? Uh, and damn, was that good! That, I mean, there was a whole the the longest chapter we read was chapter one, it, by a long shot. It's like a quarter of the book, and nothing happens until he burns down the farm, right? Like he is basically digging a grave the whole time and going through memories. Uh, but there was like such a strong pace to it, even though nothing actually happened. And well, like, I, one thing I, I noticed in this reread is that him burning down the farm, it just kind of happens. Like it like washes over. Like it just, it's not like, oh, this is like a big thing leading up to it. Like it's just something that happens. I, I don't know. The way where it wasn't overstated really was no, more he, impactful. Yeah, he just decided it. Yeah. It did it. He just and got wasted, woke up, was like, all right. Yeah, I feel that um, the character in the beginning, is, or I feel that it's good of us getting really attached to him because it's almost like a camera doesn't break from the main character and that first chapter won't let you go. It just keeps going even though nothing is happening. And I think that really like grounds us with his perspective off the bat versus if it had been like five pages. All right, chapter two. I really can't wait for you guys to finish this book. Dude, I have... See, the thing is, is, you know, I've read like a little bit of a bio of um, uh, Flannery O'Connor and the fact that she's Catholic and she's writing about Protestant, the Protestant South, uh, it intrigues me because I don't know exactly where she's going to go with this novel, right? If she was just like a secular atheist who was going after this, I kind of know where this would be going in the sense that, I, you know, I think secularism would win out and the uncle would probably still be a very neurotic weird guy but win but because she's religious like and there's some foreshadowing that i'll we'll touch on later like i think jesus is going to win out but he's not going to win out in the way that the protestants expect and but he's also not going to be denied the way the uh the uncle wants and i think i mean maybe we'll get into this later but the contrast or or the fact that the 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 school teacher is a prophet himself. Like he has this same, clearly he has the same sickness, but like he is a, not a prophet for God, but he is in, in an essence doing the exact same thing that the uncle was doing in terms that he is, you know, he is proselytizing, you know, his ideology in this, with the exact same fervor that the uncle and that our, the main character Francis is doing. That's just, that's good. I didn't draw that parallel. I don't know why. But. I didn't draw that the first time I read it, but I'm, I picked up on it this time, and it's it's subtle. It's not beating you in the head with it, but it it because it is the same. It's the same rot sickness. Well, you can even get you get a lot of it in the uh, in chapter five where um, Raber chases after Francis through uh, through Mobile. Yeah, and he goes. Uh, Francis goes to this uh, this church, and Raber didn't want him to go there, and Raber's observing this young woman. Who is uh, who's preaching as a child, and there's all these lines about how he just wants to gather all of the children of the earth to protect them from the Lord, right? As the Lord is is actually in his mind the devil, right? This concept of God, and so yeah, that's an interesting point of view because he is just as fanatical about uh, there not being a God, uh, and I think the thing that makes like avoids us looking at that was because at least for me, I always had sympathy for him because the great uncle was such a crazy bastard i mean he was trying to kidnap and did succeed in kidnapping children to baptize them and indoctrinate them in the truth so i don't know 
it's the same it's the same, it's the same concept but I mean of, Raber tried to drown his child too so that threw me for a fucking loop dude I had a, I've almost had a panic attack when I read that <laughs> yeah I was surprised but glad she included that I was like ooh this adds a whole nother layer to the character a lot about water it's true yeah it just was so like it was so I don't know gut wrenching the way uh the way she described him, you know, putting under the water and then the struggle and then like the the release right of the muscles relaxing as the child has just inhaled a bunch of fucking seawater and then this moment of terror and I mean uh, the first thing that I thought when uh when Raver brings um Bishop back uh, his son back to the beach and he Bishop is saved by someone who who knows uh, CPR and the the news title that came was like you know relieved father you know has son saved on beach and I was just like fake news dude. I love that they put it as a news headline. I don't know why that just seemed to add more punch and slash tragedy for the father. Like it's just so good. I love that the kid's name is Bishop because of the clergy reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this has like layers and layers of meaning. Like I'm sure I'm not even gathering a third of it. Oh yeah, I feel like this is one of those books you have to read three or four times if you want to. I mean, if you want yeah. to. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to ask you guys about what you think of the title for it. So at the very beginning, the title comes from Matthew. So it said, "From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away." Like, why do you think she chose that specific verse as the title? It's a really good question. Let's revisit it. Next time. Once we finish the book and it's fresh right. in our minds. Yeah, I think that'll that seems appropriate. I, I noted that as well, the the title and then the the Bible verse, because obviously that has some deeper meaning to this story. I just love also things that incorporate verses from the Bible, just because like I mean, this is from the New Testament, but the Old Testament especially, it's just some damn good writing. Like there's some really powerful verses about like love and suffering and death and struggle. And it's just like the perfect springboard for most authors to like take from. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy when they do. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the uh, Psalms uh, of Solomon. I've never read the Bible. I highly recommend it. Uh, New Testament is really easy to get through. Um, the the four Gospels and then all the Paul's epistles and then Revelations is fucking insane. But uh, I I, I wouldn't recommend reading all of the Old Testament. A lot of it is just Jewish law, which you know doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but there are still <laughs> some good stories. No, man, I, I will, uh, I'll give you a breakdown if you want. I used to be a missionary and I taught like the breakdown of the Bible. There's some really good stuff in the old Testament. I actually prefer the old Testament. I, I may all dive in. So do you read like Deuteronomy over and over? Again? No, the Pentateuch sucks. That's <laughs> yeah. like bronze age law, but the really good stuff starts with Samuel. That's when they get to Cana and it's talking about their conquest and then really the story with uh, starting with Saul. So the story of the kingdom, that's where it starts to get really good. Fuck yeah. I agree with that. I should read it. Um, to so the, since this isn't a review of the Bible. Yeah. To to the point about the uncle and the comparison with the school teacher, the, um, the, the part where the school teacher talks about how he's overcome with these fits of, of passion, of emotion he feels this like uncontrollable, I guess you call it love or, you know, this this uncomfortable feeling that sometimes if he, his eyes linger on the child too long, which reminded me of the uncle when he would also kind of have to 
It reminded me of the uncle when he would have similar like fits where he would have to like he'd be overcome and it, but instead he would lean into it and fully indulge in that emotion and he would go on like three day benders and like right, right. We, he's like he like um, the kid would just like go out into the woods to avoid him while it was happening. Yeah, actually, at, at that scene, I I highlighted it in it. I mean, not as extreme, but I I relate to that mental state, right? Like being like having a very strong emotional palate and then using self-discipline as a way to kind of like contain that because you're afraid of what might happen if it gets out of control. That's a very common thing. This guy just clearly has a ton of biffs and needs to be apparently around boring people all the time and have the most regulated life possible. And lithium. Yeah, that too. I thought it was interesting for the, uh, well, just to think about being kidnapped by a family member and like forcibly baptized and I guess indoctrinated is the school teacher. How long was he kidnapped? It was like a week, but yeah, a short period of time. Yeah, it wasn't that long. And then his dad came and got him. But I thought it was interesting that the father didn't care about him. He was like, yeah, I'm just here because my because your mother told me to get you. He was the dimwit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's not really any likable characters except for maybe Francis. I like Francis and the school teacher. I like all, I mean, in terms of like how I can relate to them, not necessarily, but I like characters just for as interesting as they are, even if they're good or bad. Like I really loved um, Madame Defarge in the last book just because she's interesting. I don't mean like love as a character. I just mean like in the sense that all of these people are broken, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Very. You don't have any, you know, Charles Darnay's in the story. Maybe Bishop. Maybe, but that's just because Bishop's uh, mentally handicapped. I I was wondering about Bishop being like the reincarnation of the great uncle because it like hints at that because both the school teacher and Francis like see the old man in the handicapped child as like am I going crazy like is this just in their heads or does she like actually mean to have him reincarnated well but I think it's because he looks similar yeah because he looks similar because the boy has like gray hair which I thought was odd since he's so young white white hair yes she's she's just he's strawberry blonde Okay. Is I okay. think the way she's using But right. also the great uncle dies well after Bishop's born. He's like the great uncle is trying to baptize Bishop at one point. So. That's true. That's true. Yeah, he comes into the city. So it can't be actually reincarnation, baptize. right? But you could see it as like a continuation of that. Well, I think it's more um Francis, although they don't even call him Francis. It's always Tarwater by his last name. Um that Tarwater specifically like sees something about the boy that reminds him of the old man or when he looks at the boy it prompts the like prophet madness within him because he he knows that it's his like destiny yeah his destiny to baptize this child is the reason he's there it's the reason he ended up there where he was trying to baptize bishop in the uh the fountain yeah and then raber's like fuck no it's a compulsion it's beyond him right so we didn't talk about one important character in this book. He's not that important, but uh, Meeks, the guy who picks up <laughs> Francis when he's uh, after he Francis burned down the the farm, and I just got a kick out of him 
because uh the thing that i noted here was um when he talks about he he got the uh the hard lesson from life degree from the school of experience i was just like okay boomer like <laughs> yeah jesus christ yeah just like the traveling salesman that's like annoyingly nice it's like oh god well, I and all, picture this guy so all he's easily. thinking is this dim-witted child's gonna be a really good worker yeah yeah the yeah. whole time all he's thinking is like i'm gonna get some good work out of this kid like and immediately was like oh all right <laughs> yeah. another dark character here we go yeah but i thought he was he was actually surprisingly helpful i was expecting meeks to like i don't know molest francis or uh, do some i don't know just do something that's fucked up because this whole book has been fucked up so far so uh but uh, he he helped francis find a phone and dropped him off at his uncle's and we haven't heard from meeks since yeah. I was going to say, as far as, like, the plot goes, in terms of, like, not much happening. So, start off with young tar water. Crazy old uncle dies. He burns down the house. He goes to the city. The school teacher tries to reform him, like, chases him around town when he runs away. And then he steals Bishop. And it's like, not much has happened over the course of over 100 pages, but it's just enrapturing because we're basically mm. in their mind. Well, you know, I, I think we're right at the, the right where we're at. I think chapters five and six is the pace is dramatically quickening. Yes, um, oh, it never felt slow to me the whole time. No, but I mean, in terms of like events that are happening, yeah, like Flannery has laid a just incredible. Uh, what do you call it? Ground base. groundwork. Yeah, uh, yeah. Foundation. Fa- thank you. Flannery has laid just an incredible foundation that you know. Then now we're gonna jump off of. I just can't wait to finish this damn book. So I wanted to bring, so the end of chapter six, uh, Rayburn is uh, thinking about one of the last words that uh, the great uncle said. And uh, the quote was, uh, the prophet I raise up out of this boy will burn your eyes clean. And that actually like gave me goosebumps when I read it because it almost, you know, we read horror stories not that long ago and neither of them put me at unease at all. But that line made me like afraid for the characters. Yeah. Well, yeah, a crazy man saying that he's gonna burn your eyes out. No, like, better that's yet, horrifying. He left that scrawled on the article. Oh right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 You just find this. The child is gone. He's gone, and that's just all written down. <laughs> I know. God damn. I wanted to bring up before I forget this point again. Just that Alex, you had mentioned in the past that in differences between Flannery and um, Faulkner, just how she treats the Southern characters with more respect. And I, another unique thing that I've never seen in another author is how she writes Southern dialect. Like there's almost an art to how you write informal English. And the word that specifically stuck out to me was um, instead of saying directly, she says directly. So it's like, T-E-R-R-E-C-K-L-Y and it's like damn that is exactly how old people in Texas where I grew up would say it like I'm coming to you directly and it's like it's just perfect like it's exactly how it sounds and you know it's written well because it needs no explanation Mm. wait till we read Zorro Neil Hurston you're gonna love this shit and actually think that this book wouldn't work if it wasn't in the south um, or in some other very distinct uh, dialect, right? So if it was written, if it was written in proper English, like you know New England English, uh, it wouldn't work because 
part of what makes this charming and like everything humanizing is that dialect. It's a way of it almost by having an accent. There is a there's there's a like a slight increase in the fullness of characters that you deal with. And there's some variety in the dialect as well. Right. Like Meeks talks different than Francis. Mm -hmm. He talks different than the great uncle. Um, And so you get personalities of characters through how they talk. And that's quite is quite a bit more obvious than uh, a lot of other novels that where all the characters talk, you know, close to the same. Hmm. Also that and just that she basically created words that I've never seen anywhere else. Like I've read multiple books where they try to do a Southern accent. Everybody has ain't in there. Everybody has, I don't know. They just try to slur words together and they like cut them short and they put apostrophes in. She doesn't do, do that. She just creates different words. Like also if somebody's saying come here, it's H E A H. And she's just the only person I've seen like actually write out the words instead of like trying to clip them. And it just sounds way more authentic to how it actually is. God bless Flannery O'Connor. I mean, it makes sense because she's Southern, so she knew the accent herself. She also has a very sweet Southern accent. Yes, she does. And she took writing extremely seriously. She was a... I can tell, yeah. A, like, a, like a huge critic of writing. Like that was her days where she went to mass, she wrote, she would read a book, and she would review it. She r- apparently wrote like hundreds of book reviews in her very short life. And she was like cruel like she was like cutting and like the criticism of some of some of these books like she called did she review any famous books uh yeah or and i'm this like a famous quote but i think she calls one of carson mcculler's novels like the worst thing she's ever read this is a contemporary of her writing and i she would hate to hear this but like a similar genre to her right like she, she you know she took writing extremely seriously she was like a just an extremely serious person and I think that part of the je ne sais quoi about like what is great about her, like why I can't quite put my finger on it. Like we've talked about different pieces, but it seems like the whole is just still more than the sum of the parts. And I think it's just she practiced so much that she's not rushing. So other authors, they don't feel like they're necessarily like in a panic, but things happen quickly. She's like not worried about taking her time. She's not worried about that first chapter being about literally nothing. Like she's just so good with the language that she feels comfortable enough to like write 10 pages about a crazy guy and his crazy grand, great grand nephew, whatever it's called. Just hanging out, cussing at the black people that are their neighbors. Mm. And it's so deliberate. Like the whole novel is I wouldn't be surprised if you asked her if she had mapped this out in her head before she even put a word down on paper. She may have. I mean, if you read her short stories, like, because she only wrote two novels and about, like, 35 short stories. That's all she ever ever got written. You'll see that, like, she grapples with, like, similar themes. And, like, even some of the short stories are, like, reworkings of other short stories. And I think, I can't remember if it's this one or Wise Blood, but there are, like, short stories that are just... Totally, like, directly, like, you can tell, like, inception of this. Which I really, I I think that's just cool to read an author and see that. I just love Mm -hmm. to see that. But uh, It's also cool to see, well, them grappling with an issue, but then also if one's more refined than the other, almost like seeing how the idea developed in their head. Yeah. It's, It's interesting to see progression like that. Definitely. 
Well, and you can tell, therefore, she has something meaningful to say, right? Because she's really struggling with how to work it out. And she tries it in a couple short stories. You know, she, she fluts around with some stuff. And then when she actually puts it down on paper, it's fucking mint. Mm. And I haven't, I mean, I haven't read a single line in this book so far where I'm like, that's a throwaway line, right? Like, that's not, that wasn't worth keeping in. It reads like a short story. It reads like a 200-page short story. Yeah. That's actually, that's that's it. Right. We should probably do a couple short stories if we want. Some some of the short stories are great that I've read. Also, I got the seriousness of her writing out of some of the essays. So, um one of them was about the birds just because she loved birds, particularly peacocks. And it's just like a 15 page description of birds on her farm, which is great. Um, she's talking about them strutting about, but then also she talks about writing in schools and how people should be reading. And then one of them is about how fiction is taught incorrectly. It should be about a story, but then the story in the context of its history. And it's like, that is a fantastic point. Can you elaborate a bit on what she meant by that she meant to say that like basically a novel or a short story isn't um it can't be taken out of its time and that it also teaches you a lot about history to see where the author was coming from at that point in time but then she also like veers in a different direction and her point was like that books shouldn't be censored in high school because it should be teaching people it should be creating their palette basically tell the good people about our plan to organize the uh bookcase sammy oh that we're gonna... a la the o'connor system well yeah i mean our plan to our plan is to organize our bookcase by date uh written or date published depending on which one makes more sense and that'll be very useful because then i need to know when something was written in order to find it but it it'll be a pretty monstrous project i have a fairly significant amount of books but it'll be worth it in the end i think but it goes to that theme about how just as important as the subject matter or the author's fucking name when a thing was written right i mean there's a difference i, love that. I think it's beautiful and important but, you know there's a difference when reading like a like mike duncan's history of rome book uh the um storm before the storm and then reading gibbon right and like they're both dealing with the same general subject, which is ancient Rome. But the fact that Gibbon wrote in the uh, what was it, the eighteen hundreds, seventeen seventeen hundreds. First yeah. one was published in seventeen seventy six. Good year, baby. Hell yeah! He mentions the um, American Revolution. It's actually really cool. Like it's Carlyle is like the. I feel bad saying this, but Carlyle's almost like the B level and Gibbons is a level. Fuck yeah. Gibbons is not fucking around. Like he has the craziest vocabulary I have ever read, but it, he's a very good author. But, uh, yeah. So reading those two things are not the same and it has a lot to do with what were the motivations behind the investigation of that. Right. So Duncan is a, was a amateur in, um, scholar, I guess, of Roman history and did a podcast on it, whereas Gibbon was, um, was he an aristocrat or was he j- like a clergyman? What was his deal? Uh, I'm not sure if he was an aristocrat, but he was like the first person to discover a lot of this stuff. Like right. He was a good author, terrible historian. Like if I didn't know the history, <laughs> I would have been fucking lost. But um, yeah, so some of the stuff, also the hate of like the Byzantines comes from him. He's the one that describes Fuck him yeah. as like a feet eunuchs who like, we're all gay and that was apparently terrible in his mind because it was the 1700s um 
But yeah, so a lot of this stuff was just new. It's so like, I don't know. I can't really fault him because he's the first one to discover it. So it's like, all right, whatever. You kind of get a pass. Just like you can't fault Columbus because he was the first one to discover Got America. him. Them being yeah, the Indians. That, that, that is the same concept. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-to-one comparison, really. Yep. Um, cool. So I want to... Do you have something to say? Not really. Okay, I just wanted to bring up something that I, I thought was... This book is very heavy. Like, there's nothing that feels very, like, light or even funny about it. Even the things that are supposed to be kind of darkly funny, I guess, still left me uneasy. Except for one thing, which is when Francis was complaining about the uh, bread of life and how he's just... There's a couple parts in the book where he's imagining just sitting by a river in heaven with, like, a little bit of fish and an endless loaf of bread. And I thought that, like, I laughed out loud when I read that. I was like, yeah, that's exactly why heaven's going to suck. That reminded me of, so I w- went to a very conservative religious school for elementary and middle school. And my teacher of geometry and algebra one, he would always describe just like how when we got to heaven, everybody would be so blissful and like the presence of God that we wouldn't care or we wouldn't do anything. We'd just like basically be in euphoric bliss the whole time. And he was from Nebraska and everybody's like, so we're basically just going to be sitting on a park bench in Nebraska. He was like, yes. (laughs) He he was not joking. Yeah. I I actually laughed out loud at uh, this section. I'm going to read it. Um, so that was when they're at the Italian restaurant, he, he takes like a couple bites of the food. And Rayburn says, don't you like that? You can have something else if you don't. And Francis goes, it all come out the same slot bucket, the boy said. And then Raybar goes, Bishop is eating his. Bishop had it smeared all over his face. Occasionally he would feed a spoonful into the sugar bowl or touch the tip of his tongue to the dish. That's what I said, Darwater says. And his glance grazes the top of the child said, a hog might like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he fucking he lays into like he goes on with Bishop too. He like there's like two more paragraphs where he's like, yeah, he's basically just a pig. There's no difference, and they have like this really awkward confrontation in the restaurant. <laughs> it was like, oh man, it's so awkward. Yeah, I like I don't I've barely read anything that's made me laugh out loud at, from a book. But that the only other point I was gonna make that I don't know if you guys noticed, but like the school teacher in his like flashes of cruelty. Like, like right when when he's first, uh, when Francis first gets to the house, the kid comes out and he tell. I think he tells he like swats the kid away. And another po- bishop, I mean, and then at another point he he tells Bishop to shut up on a couple occasions. And the I think the first morning, uh, Francis is giving him shit, and he's bl- it says he is blowing his cigarette smoke right in his face. Uh, Raber, you mean? Yeah, Raber's blowing yeah. the cigarette face in the kid's face, into in Francis's face. And it's like these weird flashes of cruelty coming from the school teacher almost seem out of character, but it's like it's a it's a very interesting addition. I mean, imagine though just having in the fifties a special needs child, there's no help for you. You've been traumatized, you're like, Oh, I made it, I'm gonna be like the great liberal, like education is the way out, and then you end up with a son who is special needs there's no help for you your wife leaves or he left her i'm not really clear on that point and then it's just like you're stuck with him like how just frustrating that must be all the petty little ways it comes out like that yep and then francis shows up right 
as some as somebody you are guilt ridden about finally shows up. Francis is the son that you wanted and the son that you can create. He even right. says that. I feel so bad for loud, Bishop because yeah. he says it in front of Bishop. No, Bishop doesn't care. Yeah, Bishop doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. Bishop probably doesn't understand what he's Bishop saying. Bishop barely knew he was drowning. Bishop clearly has. She just the way severe. he describes him. He has Down syndrome, and he's oh, okay. The, like definitely has like a pretty severe intellectual disability. Yeah, he said he's permanently five. Is the way it's described. Yeah, old school style of describing things. Although I would push back against the idea that uh, those flashes of cruelty are not like in character for Raber, right? Because we don't really get to know Raber until we get the chapters where he is the point of view we are dealing with and when those do come up they are very much in character i meant more that it's out of character in terms of the person who he is trying to be oh yeah for sure that that's that's what i meant i think that i love that all these characters are terrible because they're terrible in a way that's just makes them feel so human like you're just pissed and it's like god damn it like the great uncle who kidnapped me, who kidnapped my nephew. Like now he's here. I'm fed up with it. The kid ran away when I tried to give him an aptitude test, told me to go fuck myself. Basically like my child is retarded. There's like how angry you are. And like, you just take it out in little ways. Like, yes, it's cruel, but it's just like, I can completely understand it. If that makes sense. And keep in mind, both of these guys are orphans and Raber is young. He's under 30, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Wait, no, is it, I thought he was older. I thought he was in his fifties or something. No, he he couldn't have been because wasn't the great uncle only like in his? He died. At, wasn't it eighty four? Eighty two. Eighty two in his eighties. Yeah. So. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. I I had it because it describes Draper as young when they were going through the memory of him confronting his his uncle. Raber's uncle, the great uncle. Well, he's somewhere in mm. like into adulthood. Like he's well he's into it. He's not in his twenties or anything. He's not. I thought he was late twenties. No, it said he was. I believe it mentioned that he was twenty five when the great uncle showed up, and he wanted to. He confronted the great uncle and said, "Hey, I'm going to raise the kid the way I think the kid should be raised." And um, then it's fourteen years. Right. Later. So he'd, yeah. be, he'd be forty. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. My bad. And then I thought it was. In, well, I don't know because it said that the woman who was with whatever social office she was from when they tried to go the welfare woman the welfare woman yes well the welfare woman it said that she was twice his age so she would have been 50 see how would they have had a kid maybe that's why he has down syndrome yeah her eggs are well well no i mean but that that's actually like a fact that the the older you are you're the more likely your child is to have down syndrome preach which like, <laughs> which for her to write that in the fifties or sixties, like that's pretty astute of her to notice. I think they've known that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that recently they've also realized that like the older you are, the more likely the child is to have autism. I don't know if Down syndrome was known way earlier, but have they found that? I read it recently in like a scientific study. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's just like the older you are, it's like both for men and women, like the eggs and the sperm aren't as top quality as they used to be. Well, so with autism, the reason why I was like skeptical is that it's very different from from Down syndrome because like what Down syndrome is, is is a chromosomal deformity Mm -hmm. so that as the eggs get older, like it's it's the, the like the actual genetic components of it are more likely to be 
what do you call it? Misformed. Mm-hmm. Because like what it, what is Down syndrome? It's an, it's an extra chromosome. I think they so. Have yeah, twenty third yeah. chromosome. But with autism, that's not the case. Like autism isn't caused chromosomally. So that's why I was just like, wow, I'm surprised. I'll try to find that. I'll send it I believe you. It's just like, what the fuck is the cause of that? But I mean, also right. at the same time, like, who knows? Studies come out all the time. Like, there's studies that says coffee's good. There's studies that says coffee's bad. Like, there could be another one next week that completely contradicts the one that I read. Mm. To veer off in another direction, that one of the reasons why that's the case is that you don't actually get many kudos for having a null study, right? So you investigate a question and you find out that it the way you approach it or the data that you have is inconclusive. Yep. So... They're always messing with, uh, I forget what it's called. I think it's like, like uh, it's the G something. It's not the G spot. Uh, <laughs> Got to hit it. Um, but there's a, there's a band of like if plus or minus X percent um, in the, the difference between what you're trying to track and its correlation. And that is if it is above or below that percentage, then you can say that you have a, reason to believe of connection between the the uh, two things you're tracking and a lot of times that gets like screwed around with or they you know they manipulate the data because when they do the study they would like to do more studies and if you do a bunch of null studies then nobody will give you money to do more studies because they want a result mm. interesting i didn't know that i think isn't it three percent plus or minus three percent for statistical significance i think so yeah but there's all kinds of fancy t- statistical stuff people do in order to make their findings appear more legitimate, which is one of the reasons. I do not understand why statisticians are so emphatic about their findings when you like read their papers, because they, of all people, should know that they're <laughs> that, that shit's not true. Well, then they'd be out of job. That's, that yeah, I love true. when people say it's like, the numbers don't lie. Yeah, but you can choose which numbers you show. Like, they can be manipulated. Hmm. Right. That's a good, good reason. I thought it was just nope. n- no, no not touching November yourself. Is, no, nope. It's not just masturbation. You can't not in a woman. I know, but those that's people so are, stupid. I know, but those people are fucking stupid. Like they're not fucking women anyway. It's more yeah. about like not looking at porn. Right. Well, yeah, I think porn is it's bad. Yeah. Well, let me back because I want this on the podcast on the record. I've never heard a good argument for pornography. Yeah, I mean, I understand it from like a woman's agency point of view, but its social, um, its social cost, right? Is it's not, I guess it's not in the end. I can't really judge what like the macro effects are, but it doesn't strike me as good. Or I haven't really dealt with anybody who is like, I would say, yes, pornography has made your life better. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, thinking of macro effects, why do why does everybody wax now? Because you watch porn and everybody's waxed so that you can get a better view of what's going on. Like, it's not really natural. Like, people didn't... I waxed my pussy. I know, but I'm saying, like, <laughs> pre... I paid a pregnant The last lady to 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. I, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just thinking about the... I'm just saying, like, the, that stuff. People watch porn and it's, like, influencing social behavior. Well, yes. And now you see, like, a rise of, like, like deaths occurring because men are choking their wives to death. Oh, like that's a real thing that's happening and that's because pornography's introduced this shit. And uh, I, those situations I assume are probably clo- you know consensual not obviously. No, mur- they weren't. No, it's murder. But also like what Dude, you can't it- choke someone to death. No, like, what I mean to say is that the choking fantasy was consensual and I'm not saying it was consensual that they got killed, but no, that Yeah, but it wasn't an accident. 
is what I'm saying. You know, oh, okay. you, it's impossible to accidentally choke somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess what, the more the, what I'm saying is they're using that as an excuse, like the oh, it's just a sexual thing, but like to choke someone to death, like they they thrash violently, like it's not. No, I'm I'm not denying that that is true. Oh, I know you. Are. I'm I'm just saying that You're saying like bitches like get choked. Yeah, like every single one I've ever met. Oh, agreed. And that that's part <laughs> that pornography is part of why that is a um like a more common thing to enjoy. Choking was probably universal. a bad example, actually. Same with like anal or pegging is like this didn't used to be common, but then like with the rise of porn, people see it and then they start to incorporate it, and then it's like to be expected. So now it's like, how diverse is your sexual palette? Have you tried X, Y, and Z? Whereas 30 years ago, it'd be like, what the fuck? No. Yeah. I mean, that's not necessary. I guess none those of, aren't necessarily Some bad. of these things aren't necessarily bad, but the point is that it is directly psychologically harmful to look at pornography and masturbate to it. Like it is bad for your brain. It I rewires your sexual. I have some divergent thoughts than okay. what you think. I think that especially like, my the, so like my first introduction to sex and i assume everybody here was like peeping porn on the net because you're like how does doing it fucking work and then you're like that's fascinating and what was interesting because like i'm a woman so my sex is concave i can't really get a good gander at it my first glimpse at like womanhood was through like the lens of pornography is the first time i re- really got a look at a vagina and then was promoted to like get the mirror and look at mine so like it might it does shape your sexuality in ways that are probably like filtered through all kinds of like gross, like, you know, transactional lenses and transactional lenses and stuff like that. But also, I mean, it's a thing. What are you going to take away a thing that already exists? No, but I I don't, I don't, I I don't understand why the media is constantly pushing it on young people. I think it's sickening because the point you're making is that you are failed by the education system and your parents. No, not to be harsh. No, I, but no, I was. You were directly failed by them. So the point is not that pornography is good; is that you were failed by your education system. You shouldn't have to learn about what your sexual, your reproductive organs look like from watching one get fucked. And also, <laughs> somebody that's it, trying though. to sell you. No, something. of course you liked it. I'm not we saying we all that. liked it. Yeah, I think that is <laughs> not the point I'm trying I think to make. That's the messed <laughs> so that's part, why is I you're think... learning through something where they're trying to sell you something, but and that's they foster insecurity. In the world, Bobby. I know, but they foster insecurity about a natural function. So does Maybelline. That's not even. That's well, also yeah. not. I mean, even that's my true for a vast majority of female products. But. It's that it's directly unhealthy for you to associate sexuality with looking at a screen to being a passive observer of mm. an act. Agreed. Yep, that agreed. is rewiring especially everyone yeah, but especially young men what about dirty pictures i mean i'm not saying it's like going to kill you to look at it but this new culture where we have men looking watching videos of people fuck literally every day or multiple times a day like yeah the amount of point that zoomers are watching is like right this is seriously not good and we didn't even and people you know, aren't having sex no, no zoomers are like, fuck anymore yeah they don't want to fuck you're gonna be hooked Wait, up to what? the pleasure bot soon. That's re- that's gonna be real. Zoomers don't fuck. N- they're, I mean, they're too young. To, but I mean, millennials don't fuck. Well, no, it's just like late um, millennials fuck. We're millennials. late millennials. Late millennials and late zoomers millennials are fuck. having like much much less sex. Oh, late millennials like young millennials. Yeah, not like yeah. Okay, I misunderstood. Yeah, um, yeah, that is definitely something. Also, much higher rates of suicide. Yeah. Uh, those are going through the roof and, and mental illness just in general right. drug addiction but yeah i mean we're you know this the pornography thing like 
I didn't, I wasn't, you know, the, when I was able to find porn as a child, right, it was, I had to dial up internet connection, you know, and I just typed boobs into fucking YouTube oh, yeah. or into Google, right? So I was like, oh, okay, this is what that is. But I didn't have access to, you know, fucking endless porn videos, you know, to stream on my phone, right? Like that wasn't a thing. So I can see as some, you know, someone who was whatever, born 12 or 13 years ago, they already had that pretty much ready to go as soon as they were as soon as they uh became teenagers and i don't know what you do with that i think the solution is not to ban it just because like that gets into free speech issues or that's always been their defense because you can't ban there's definitely no, not there is no but ban, just, there's never going to be banning you can't we'll just force it something. to be a separate url dot xxx dot com dot org dot ed dot xxx so that you know what it's categorized as that way if you want to block it for kids you can but if you still want to see it fine you just have to type in a different web address yeah and your kids I are going to see it i'm not saying they're going to go i mean kids are going to get at settings, it either like, way so for sure yeah. and the cat's out of the bag you can't cancel moderni- moderni- modernity yeah but i think that there's a push among liberals to start teaching that looking at in like middle school uh-huh. teaching children that looking at porn is natural and normal and healthy and I just think that's disgusting. I don't think. It's, I don't think. I yeah. think that. I think it's a. You know, it's a swing in what is likely the right direction, which is to say that you know, pubescent kids have sexualities, then that that's okay, and that you know, you're 14 and you are all fucked up about it. I mean, I think there's just way healthier okay. ways to experience sexuality. Yeah. Right. Like but with but another for human all being. of human, all of modern history up until very recently, it's been like, don't fucking talk about it. We're going to put boobs on every billboard, but if if you say you like it or if you're a girl and you want to show a titty, you're going to get in big old trouble. So it's either swept completely under the rug and you have to, you know, have your first experience with sexuality all secretly on a computer because you can't reasonably talk to your friends about it, let alone your fucking parents or anyone who knows anything. So the swing in the other direction of being like, I guess porn's okay because we all know you're looking at it. We look at it, too. But it's more yeah, but that you get looking, addicted to it. In the kid, yeah, a it's addictive, but also like. But do you, but do you see what I'm saying though? It's like yeah, but there's a difference between it. looking at pictures of like boobs in a Sports <laughs> Illustrated magazine and watching a woman get gang banged, like yeah. or watching violent TV. pornography. Yeah, like they're they are. I think they are personally fundamentally different in terms of developing healthy sexualities. Yeah, like I'm all for. freedom of like (laughs) sexual expression especially for women since it's been like a tool to oppress them for forever but i just dudes y'all gotta have fun also yeah for men being a porn actress is not a healthy expression of uh uh, no that's that's not what i'm trying to say (laughs) yeah that's definitely not what i'm trying to say i (laughs) I know that there's like much better ways to healthily express it and i think a lot of it should come through actual sex education like not the sad, sad thing that passes for sex education, especially yeah. in the South. Holy shit. I don't think I had sex education. I had puberty education and then I, I was a junior only. in high school when we learned about condoms. Same. And I was like, this bitch is already pregnant next to me. Like, yeah. Leonard already did good. We learned in our freshman or sophomore years. So we were ahead of the curve. I was taught abstinent only with the um, like a piece of paper. And it's like when you fuck someone, and then you rip it in half. It's like you give them half your heart and then you like keep ripping it. And that's like when you get to nothing. Oh, yep, God. Texas. No wonder you're doing no nut November, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we I mean, you know, this is one of those conversations. There's like 
there's no like simple there's no simple answer to it it's so it, massively complex and then on the other side right you have um well you have the liberals who were talking about uh you know no nut november being like a uh, a fascist tool right the fact that the fact that some men out there who struggle with pornography which is a real thing uh want to you know use some time in order to get themselves under control and make their lives better is seen as some sort of fascist dog whistle. I literally saw a tweet that said, um, you know, masturbation stops school shootings. Oh, I saw, I saw that, that too. too. Did you send that to us? I think you I might have. Sent us yeah, you, you, we, Wasn't yeah. that wild? Like the idea that the only reason there's not a bunch of people shooting up schools is because they can jerk off to porn. Or that the reason those poor fucking kids chose to shoot up a school rather than themselves is simply masturbating is so insane because once again it puts the onus on the individual which absolves all of people in power or the systems that be from responsibility for horrible things like teenagers killing themselves or all their peers Mm. also the it's not just the nut this might be the hot take of the night that actually makes it into the podcast but um it also absolves the children at the school and you know uh oh no there yeah yeah you i um there's a book by um a guy named mark ames who called uh, going postal and it's about um different you know acts of uh you know domestic violence so they're going postal domestic comes from terror dom- well it's not because terror think? has the but ter- domestic violence means like husband wife shit so. well i'm trying to find the middle ground because terror or terrorism policy. uh yeah it's not aimed at changing policy but it's like uh in domestic mass shootings, I guess, um, and the going postal comes from there was a, a series of uh, post office workers who shot up their workplace. But going postal also deals, deals with school shootings. And you find when you investigate those that a lot of these kids were teased and bullied relentlessly. And that doesn't make it OK that they shot up the school. But it's certainly part of the narrative that is never touched upon. Right. Because you have the result of the school shooting. And. You know, okay, so these kids are a little weird, and we all know when high school kids can be fucking really cruel, right? Yeah, I was a bully. Um, and uh, the you know sometimes they the bullied kid commits suicide, and then we all you know get sad and want to stop bullying. But sometimes they try to take revenge, and that's a, I mean, it doesn't make it okay, but it's a very understandable response. I mean, why do you think that? Uh the Columbine shooters have like a massive following on Tumblr and stuff. Yeah. Like they're folk heroes. Yeah. They speak to a, uh, to a certain type of student person. Yeah. yeah. Can we get a quick like moment of silence for that brave, brave cop that hid outside of the school and should be put in jail. Like, thank you. I'm glad that we give <laughs> how much Wait, was what, your salary? Was was I don't it? think he should be put in jail. You think he should be shot. It was, criminal okay, negligence so. <laughs> there were multiple kids that died directly because of his actions Dude, if i don't do my job nothing bad happens to me it's just a job right what as a police officer like i guess l- what troy is like at least uh touching for me is that like his how police justify their existence is based on being able to respond exactly to situations like this and the fact that he didn't in that time of need is uh, especially despicable, and I assume he was protected by his police union. That's why they. Uh, Alex, you yeah, should that's choke why, that cop. That's to why death. the police <laughs> give themselves like Humvees and assault rifles and 
murder random civilians is because they need to have this power so they can well, stop these sorts so of things. Well, not so random civilians. If only they had a Tomahawk missile and could just shoot that at Parkland. Yeah. They would have definitely got the shooter. A fucking drone flies over. What was the name of that badass from Texas who took down all the cops? Um, like I forget Xavier the guy who was in something. was in Austin in the tower. Yeah, the guy they blew up with a fucking robot. My aunt was actually there. That in was in Austin. Dallas. Or, a, no, it was Dallas. It was right? a Black yeah. Lives, um, Black Lives Matter rally. Although he wasn't involved, he was a vet. And that parking garage I actually drove by like all the time to get to my job senior year. Nice, it was dope. And then also I drove right by where JFK got shot. And there's like this massive X tape on the ground. Don't they do like tours where you can like ride in like oh, yeah. a replica he was car? For yeah. sure not fucking shot by Lee Harvey Oswald. Like his 100%. He- his head X-Files popped the says wrong he was way. Iced. X-Files says he was iced by the smoking man yep. and Oswald was a patsy. And if X-Files says so, I they got the lone gunman believe on the case. I had, because my high school teachers had nothing better to do, the economics teacher is like a conspiracy theorist, but he dedicated an entire two classes, so a good hour and a half, to explaining his JFK theory about how it was basically revenge for from the mob because the mob helped him get elected because of their father. They had connection from bootlegging. And then, oh, we're going to appoint Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, and then he's going to crack down on crime. And the mob was like, what the fuck? We helped get you elected. So, yep, Jimmy Hoffa. Look it up. So um, my my uh, stand-in grandfather uh, um, is like spent uh, about fifteen years doing research on the JFK assassination and wrote multiple books about uh, what didn't happen and uh, how like his basic theory is that uh, that it was the the government, one of the agencies in the government. Uh, but yeah, the JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald definitely did not kill JFK. So we're a pro-JFK conspiracy theory podcast. We're, we're pro-Holocaust, right? We're not um, pro-Holocaust. <laughs> we believe the Holocaust is real. We're but we're anti-Holocaust. We're against it. Okay, cool. We do not like believe a, in Russia as a, as a, as a nation. Russiagate, that, that conspiracy oh, yeah. that baby boomers have. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah. Um, or if it was real, it's not extraordinary. We do believe in the Everyone moon landing. Colludes. Yeah. We, oh, I do believe no. in the moon landing. I do not. You don't? I absolutely do. No. Why not? I have no reason to. Both my grandpas. Do we believe the Earth it. is round? Yes. Do we have any? But it might be bigger that? than they say it is. Could be big Earth. Um, so next week we will be reading uh, the rest of this book, uh, chapter seven to the end. And um, the week after that, we have a special interview coming up. Uh, thank you everybody for listening to the Literal Fiction Book Club. Have a good night. Bye. Night, everyone.